Section 18 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Henry III deposes the Pope, A.D. 1048, by Ferdinand Gregorovius. Henry III deposes the Popes. The German Empire controls the Papacy, A.D. 1048. After the extinction of the Carlovingian line, A.D. 887, and the division of the Empire, the Church of Rome, and the Christian world fell into a highly demoralized state, attributable to the destitution to which ecclesiastical bodies were reduced by a frequent predations of bands of robbers, the immorality of the priesthood and the power of electing the popes falling into the hands of intriguing and licentious patrician females, whom aspirants to the Holy See were not ashamed to bribe for their favors. So depraved had the general spirit of the age become that Pope Boniface the Seventh, A.D. 974, robbed St. Peter's Church and its treasury and fled to Constantinople, while Pope John the Eighteenth, A.D. 1003, was prevented, by general indignation only, from accepting a sum of money from Emperor Basil to recognize the right of the Greek patriarch to the title of universal bishop. A child, son of one of the old noble houses, was consecrated Pope as Benedict IX, A.D. 1033, according to some authorities, at the age of ten or twelve years. He became noted for his profligacy and was driven from his throne, the Romans electing as Pope Sylvester III, John, Bishop of Sabina, who is said to have paid a high price for the dignity. Benedict, however, regained the papal seat shortly afterward, and drove Sylvester into a refuge, but later sold the office to John Gratianus, archpriest of Rome, who, as Gregory VI, made laudable attempts to effect a general reformation. He failed in his efforts, and a chaotic state ensued, three popes claiming the triple tiara and reigning in Rome, Gregory at the Vatican, Benedict in the Lateran, and Sylvester in the Church of Santa Maria Maggiore. On the invitation of the Roman people, Henry the Black, the young and zealous emperor of Germany, repaired to Italy in 1045, and summoned a great ecclesiastical council at Sutri, which passed a decree deposing the three papal claimants. The same council elected to the tiara the German bishop of Bamberg, who reigned in the Holy See as Clement II. One of his first ceremonies, carried out with all the gorgeous pomp of the Roman Church, was the imperial coronation of Henry and his wife Agnes. But Henry's action, while it dragged the church out of the sloth it had fallen into, startled the ecclesiastical world, and was a prelude to the struggle between Pope and Emperor, which, under St. Hildebrand, Pope Gregory VII, culminated in the independent establishment of the pontificate and papal power. Ferdinand Gregorovius Henry III, the son and successor of Conrad, was young, vigorous, and God-fearing, a noble prince called, like Charles and Otto the Great, to restore Rome, 
to deliver it from tyrants, and to reform the almost annihilated church. For the papacy had been still further dishonored by Benedict the Ninth. It seemed as if a demon from hell, in the disguise of a priest, occupied the chair of Peter, and profaned the sacred mysteries of religion by his insolent courses. Benedict the Ninth, restored in 1038, protected by his brother Gregory, who ruled the city as senator of the Romans, led unchecked the life of a Turkish sultan in the palace of the Lateran. He and his family filled Rome with robbery and murder. All lawful conditions had ceased. Towards the end of 1044, or in the beginning of the following year, the populace at length rose in furious revolt. The Pope fled, but his vassals defended the Leonina against the attacks of the Romans. The Trastevereins remained faithful to Benedict, and he summoned friends and adherents. Count Gerard of Galeria advanced with a numerous body of horse to the Saxon gate and repulsed the Romans. An earthquake added to the horrors in the revolted city. The ancient chronicle which relates these events does not tell us whether Trastevir was taken by assault after a three-day struggle, but merely relates that the Romans unanimously renounced Benedict and elected Bishop John of the Sabina to the papacy as Sylvester III. John also owed his elevation to the gold with which he bribed the rebels and their leader, Gerardo de Saxo. This powerful Roman had first promised his daughter in marriage to the Pope, and afterwards refused her, for the Pope had not hesitated, in all seriousness, to sue for the hand of a Roman lady, a relative of his own. Her father lured him on with the hope of winning her, but required that Benedict should in the first place resign the tiara. The Pope, burning with passion, consented, and fulfilled his promise during the revolt of the Romans. He was mastered by the demon of sensuality. It was reported by the superstitious that he associated with devils in the woods and attracted women by means of spells. It was asserted that books of magic, with which he had conjured demons, had been found in the Lateran. His banishment meanwhile aroused the haughty spirit of his house, and anger at Gerard's treacherous conduct proved a further incentive to revenge. His numerous adherents still held St. Angelo, and his gold acquired him new friends. After a forty-nine days' reign, Sylvester III was driven from the apostolic chair, which the Tusculan reascended in March 1045. Benedict now ruled for some time in Rome, while Sylvester III found safety either within some fortified monument in the city or in some Sabine fortress, and continued to call himself Pope. A beneficent darkness wails the horrors of this year. Hated by the Romans, insecure on his throne, in constant terror of the renewal of the revolution, Benedict eventually found himself obliged to abdicate. The abbot Bartholomew of Grottaferrata urged him to the step, but he unblushingly sold the papacy for money like a piece of merchandise. In exchange for a considerable income, that is to say, for the revenue of Peter Spence from England, he made over his papal dignities by a formal contract to John Gratianus, a rich archpriest of the Church of St. John at the Latin Gate, on May the 1st, 1045. Could the holiest office in Christendom be more deeply outraged than by a sale such as this? And yet so general was the traffic in ecclesiastical dignities throughout the world, 
that when a pope finally solved the chair of peter the scandal did not strike society especially heinous john gratian or gregory the sixth set aside the canon law with a defiant courage which perhaps was only understood by the minority of his compatriots he bought the papacy in order to wrest it from the hands of a criminal and this remarkable pope although regarded as an idiot in that terrible period was possibly an earnest and high-minded man scarcely had peter damian knowledge of this traffic when he wrote to gregory the sixth on his elevation rejoicing that the dove with the olive branch had returned to the ark the saint may have known the pope personally and have been persuaded of his spiritual virtues even the chroniclers of the time who represent him assuredly with injustice as so rude and simple that he was obliged to appoint a representative are unable to fasten any crime upon him the cluniacs in france and the congregations of italy all hailed his elevation as the beginning of better time and side by side with this simonist pope a young and brave monk suddenly appears who after the heroic exertions of a lifetime was to raise the degenerate papacy to a height hitherto undreamed of hildebrand first issues from obscurity by the side of gregory the sixth he became the pope's chaplain and this fact alone proves that gregory was no idiot how far hildebrand's activity already extended whether he had any share in gregory's illegal elevation we do not know but in the representative spoken of by the chronicles we may easily recognize the gifted young monk who was gregory's counsellor and who later took the name of gregory the seventh in grateful recollection of his predecessor while benedict the ninth pursued his wild career in tusculum or rome gregory the sixth remained pope for nearly two years his desire was to save the church which stood in need of a drastic reform and which soon afterward obtained it the papacy lately a hereditary fief of the counts of tusculum was utterly ruined the dominium temporale the ominous gift of the carlovingians the box of pandora in the hands of the pope from which a thousand evils had arisen had disappeared since the church could scarcely command the fortresses in the immediate neighborhood of the city a hundred lords the captains or vassals of the pope stood ready to fall upon rome every road was infested with robbers every pilgrim was robbed within the city the churches lay in ruins while the priests caroused daily assassinations made the streets insecure roman nobles sword in hand forced their way into st peter's itself to snatch the gifts which pious hands still placed upon the altar the chronicler who describes this state of things extols gregory for having repressed it the captains it is true besieged the city but the pope boldly assembled the militia restored a decree of order and even conquered several fortresses in the district sylvester had apparently made an attempt on rome he was however defeated by gregory's energy the short and dark period of gregory's pontificate was terrible and his severity towards the robbers soon made him hated by the nobles and even by the equally rapacious cardinals whatever he may have done under the influence of french and italian monks to rescue the church from its state of barbarous confusion it was as in the time of otto the great by the german dictatorship alone that it could be saved 
the exertions of gregory the sixth soon ceased to bear any result his means were exhausted and his opponents gradually overpowered him so utter was the state of anarchy that it is said that all three popes lived in the city at the same time one in the lateran a second in st peter's and a third in santa maria maggiore the eyes of the better citizens at length turned to the king of germany the archdeacon peter convoked a synod without consulting gregory and it was here resolved urgently to invite henry to come and take the imperial crown and raise the church from the ruin into which it had fallen henry coming from augsburg crossed the brenner and arrived at verona in september ten forty six accompanied by a great army and filled with the ardent desire of becoming the reformer of the church no enemy opposed him the bishops and dukes among them the powerful margrave boniface of tuscany did homage without delay the roman situation was provisionally discussed at a great synod in pavia gregory the sixth now hastened to meet the king at piacenza where he hoped to gain the monarch to his side henry however dismissed him with the explanation that his fate and that of the antipopes would be canonically decided by a council shortly before christmas he assembled one thousand and forty-six bishops and roman clergy at sutri the three popes were summoned and gregory and sylvester the third actually appeared sylvester was deposed from his pontificate and condemned to penance in a monastery gregory the sixth however gave the council cause to doubt its competence to judge him gregory who was an upright man or one at least conscious of good intentions consented publicly to describe the circumstances of his elevation and was thereby forced to condemn himself as guilty of simony and unworthy of the papal office he quietly laid down the insignia of the papacy and his renunciation did him honour henry with the bishops and the margrave boniface immediately started for the city which did not shut its gates against him for benedict the second had hid himself in tusculum and his brothers did not venture on any resistance rome weary of the tusculum horrors joyfully accepted the german king as her deliverer never afterward was a king of germany received with such glad acclamations by the roman people never again did any other effect such great results or achieve the like changes with the roman expedition of henry the third begins a new epoch in the history of the city and more especially of the church it seemed as if the waters of the deluge had subsided and as if men from the ark had landed on the rock of peter to give new races and new laws to a new world what law that stern and terrible power which kills binds and holds together signifies in human affairs has indeed been experienced by few periods so fully as by that with which we have now to deal a synod assembled in st peter's on december twenty third again pronounced all three popes deposed and a canonical pope had consequently to be elected like otto the third before his coronation henry had also at his side a man who was to wear the tiara and to confer the crown upon himself adalbert of hamburg and bremen having refused the papacy the king chose sidger of bamberg the royal command was all that was required to place the candidate on the sacred chair henry however 
would not violate any of the canonical forms. As king of Germany, he possessed no right either over that city or yet over the papal election. The right must first be conferred upon him, and this was done by a treaty which he had already concluded with the Romans at Sutri. Roman signors, said Henry at the second sitting of the Synod on December 24th, however thoughtless your conduct might hitherto have been, I still accord you liberty to elect a pope according to ancient custom. Choose from among this assembly whom you will. The Romans replied, When the royal majesty is present, the assent to the election does not belong to us, and when it is lacking, you are represented by your patricius. For in the affairs of the republic, the patricius is not patricius of the pope, but of the emperor. We admit that we have been so thoughtless as to appoint idiots as popes. It now behooves your imperial power to give the Roman Republic the benefit of law, the ornament of manners, and to lend the arm of protection to the Church. The senators of the year 1046, who so meekly surrendered the valuable right to the German king, heeded not the shades of Alberic and the three crescenti, since these, their patricians, would have accused them of treason. The Romans of these days were, however, ready for any sacrifice, so that they obtained freedom from the Tusculum tyranny. Nothing more clearly shows the utter depth of their exhaustion and the extent of their sufferings than the light surrender of a right which it had formerly cost Otto the Great such repeated efforts to extort from that city. Rome made the humiliating confession that she possessed no priest worthy of the papacy, that the clergy in the city were rude and utter simonists. All other circumstances, moreover, forbade the election of a Roman or even of an Italian to the papacy. The Romans besought Henry to give them a good pope. He presented the Bishop of Bamberg to the assenting clergy and led the reluctant candidate to the apostolic chair. Clement II, consecrated on Christmas Day, 1046, immediately placed the imperial crown on Henry's head and on that of his wife Agnes. There were still many Romans who had been eyewitnesses of like transactions, that is to say, of papal election and imperial coronation following one the other in immediate succession, in the case of Otto III and Henry V, who, as they now saw, the second German Pope mount the chair of Peter, may have recalled the fact that the first had only lived a few sad years in Rome, and had died in misery. The coronation of Henry III was performed under such significant conditions, and in such perfect tranquillity, that it offers the most fitting opportunity for describing in a few sentences the ceremonial of the imperial coronation. Since Charles the Great, these repeated ceremonies, with the more frequent coronations of Lateran processions of the popes, formed the most brilliant spectacle in Rome. When the emperor-elect approached with his wife and retinue, he first took an oath to the Romans, at the little bridge on the Neronian field, faithfully to observe the rites and usages of the city. On the day of the coronation he made his entrance through the Porta Castella, close to St. Angelo, and here repeated the oath. The clergy and the corporations of Rome greeted him at the church of Santa Maria Traspontina, on a legendary site called the 
Terebinthus of Nero. The solemn procession then advanced to the steps of the cathedral. Senators walked by the side of the king. The prefect of the city carried the naked sword before him, and his chamberlains scattered money. Arrived at the steps, he dismounted from his horse, and, accompanied by his retinue, ascended to the platform, where the Pope, surrounded by the higher clergy, awaited him sitting. The king stooped to kiss the Pope's foot, tendered the oath to be an upright protector of the church, received from the Pope the kiss of peace, and was adopted by him as the son of the church. With a solemn song, both king and Pope entered the church of Santa Maria in Turi, beside the steps of St. Peter's, and here the king was formerly made canon of the cathedral. He then advanced, conducted by the Lateran count of the palace, and by the primicerius of the judges, to the silver door of the cathedral, where he prayed, and the bishop of Albano delivered the first oration. Innumerable mystic ceremonies awaited the king in St. Peter's itself. Here, a short way from the entrance, was the rota porphyretica, a round porphyry stone inserted in the pavement, on which the king and pope knelt. The imperial candidate here made his profession of faith. The cardinal bishop of Portus placed himself in the middle of the rota and pronounced the second oration. The king was then draped in new vestments, was made a cleric in the sacristy by the pope, was clad with tunic, dalmatica, pluviale, mitre, and sandals, and was then led to the altar of St. Maurice, whither his wife, after similar but less fatiguing ceremonies, accompanied him. The bishop of Ostia here anointed the king on the right arm and neck, and delivered the third oration. If the emperor-elect were fitted by the dignity of his calling, then the solemnity of the function, the mystic and tedious pomp, the magnificent monotone of prayer and song in the ancient cathedral, hallowed by so many exalted memories, must have stirred his inmost soul. The pinnacle of all human ambition, the crown of Charles the Great, lay glittering before his longing eyes on the altar of the Prince of the Apostles. The Pope, however, first placed a ring on the finger of the anointed. As symbol of the faith, the permanence and strength of his Catholic rule, with similar formula, girt him with the sword, and finally placed the crown upon his head. Take, he said, the symbol of fame, the diadem of royalty, the crown, the empire, in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Renounce the archfiend and all sins, be upright and merciful, and live in such pious love that thou mayest hereafter receive the everlasting crown in company with the saints from our Lord Jesus Christ. The church resounded with the Gloria and the Laudes. Life and victory to the emperor, to the Roman and the German army, and with the endless acclamations of the rude soldiers who hailed their king in German, Slav, and Roman tongues. The emperor divested himself of the symbols of the empire, and now ministered to the pope as subdeacon at mass. The Count Palatine afterward removed the sandals, and put the red imperial boots with the spurs of St. Maurice upon him, whereupon the entire procession, accompanied by the Pope, left the church and advanced along the so-called triumphal way, through the flower-bedecked city, amid the ringing of all the bells to the Lateran, 
at special stations were posted clergy singing praises and the scholae or guilds placed to salute the emperor as he passed chamberlains scattered money before and behind the procession and all the scholae and the officials of the palace received the presbyterium or customary present of money a banquet closed the solemnities in the papal palace such are merely the barest outlines of an imperial coronation of this period the ceremonies borrowed from byzantine pomp had been established since charles the great and had remained essentially the same although in the course of time many details had been altered and others had been introduced the magnificence of these spectacles is no longer rivalled by the pageantry of our days the multitudes of dukes and counts of bishops and abbots knights and nobles with their retinues the splendour of their attire the strangeness of their faces and their tongues the martial array of warriors the mystic magnificence of the papacy with all its orders in such picturesque costume the aspect of secular rome of judges and senators of consuls and duques of the militia with their banners in curious motley fantastic attire lastly as the sublime scene of the drama the stern gloomy ruinous city through which the procession solemnly advanced all combined to produce a picture of such mighty and universal historic interest that even a roman accustomed to the pomp of trajan's period could not have beheld it without feelings of astonishment these coronation processions restored to the city its character of metropolis the romans of the time might flatter themselves that the emperors whom they elected still ruled the universe the strangers who flocked to the city freely distributed their gold and the hungry populace could live for weeks on the proceeds of the coronation end of section eighteen